Welcome to Procurement Reimagined, a podcast by Gatekeeper. We believe traditional procurement has had its day, the world is changing, and our industry needs to change with it. On the podcast, we share the best practices to help you streamline your procurement processes, navigate vendor onboarding, and ultimately get the most value out of your vendor contracts. I'm your host, Daniel Barnes. One question we'd like to ask all of the guests on this podcast is, could you explain what you do as though I'm a five-year-old? Okay. Companies engage in dealings with each other. Let's call them transactions. And those transactions can be sufficiently complicated and there might be enough at stake that people long ago thought, well, it'd be a good idea to put the rules for these transactions in writing. So we make sure we think through what's involved and so that down the road, if there's any problem that arises, we can consult those rules and figure out what's what. And those rules are referred to as contracts. Now, the thing is, the dealings between companies tend to be a little complicated. So the result is that contracts can get complicated too, and a lot is at stake. So they can be a challenge. But transactions between companies tend to fall into patterns. People tend to do the same, companies tend to do the same sorts of things over and over. So instead of creating a contract from scratch, you can say, hey, these companies did something similar, so let's use that as the basis. And that comes as a relief because, as I say, writing contracts can be challenging. A lot of people aren't particularly great at the writing part, so we can copy. The problem is that when you're copying, ideally you'd make sure that what you're copying is as relevant as necessary and as clear as can be, so there aren't any fights about meaning. But routinely, people don't have the time, the expertise, the authority to make sure contract they're copying is as good as can be. Instead, they just copy on faith. And when you have generations of people copying on faith, you get a disconnect between what's in the contract and what people think is in the contract. And that's made worse by another factor, which is that lawyers play an important part in contracts. And lawyers tend to be know-it-all, and they also want to make sure that what they do seems important so that you hire them to, to help you with contracts. So the result is that stuff gets more complicated than it needs to be with all sorts of complicated words and phrases appearing in contracts. And when you challenge lawyers about these complicated words and phrases and say, this seems like it doesn't mean anything, that gets lawyers agitated and they are inclined to make explanations up for the complexity. So the result is contracts have just become very difficult to understand. So that just adds to the problem of copy and paste. People are copying and pasting stuff that they don't understand. And it just, the result is that everything takes longer than it should. Everything is confusing. People waste time, waste money, they get into fights they shouldn't get into over what is expressed in these contracts governing dealings between companies. So it's all something of a mess. And my, what I've done over the past 20 plus years is, try, is look at the messy language and say, hey, how about if instead of using this phrase, we use a different phrase and use it somewhat differently. And it's just, it is involved hacking through the undergrowth for those 20 years, coming up with guidelines. And now I have a book called Manual Solid Contract Drafting that aspires to help people understand what's in this confusing language and how to do better. I hope the five-year-old can understand that protracted explanation. 
No, Ken, that, that was great. And as a test, I will get my five-year-old um, in front of this later on today and just be like, hey, what does, do you understand this? I'd be pretty impressed if he does. But like, no, that was a really good explanation. And I was just sharing before we went live that I was using your book in my last role, the fourth edition or my former GC now, Richard Given gave it to me, very big fan of yours and suggested that I use it. And it, maybe one question around the book, how do you even go about creating a book like that? Because it's like what, 600 pages, maybe the fifth edition, right? Yeah, and it really cut through and not 167 pages. That is incredible. And it's not fluff either, because fundamentally looking at fluff, the fluffy legal language and breaking it down and showing you what's wrong with it, different versions, what you could do in such scenarios. How do you even go about creating that? There's no habit. It's just actionable advice. Intermittently really dense stuff. Well, what you do is you decide one day, hey, I'm going to I'm going to learn about contract language. And in my case, I sat down at my in-laws dining room table and said, I'm going to write a book. And to their credit, they didn't say, are you out of your mind? Yeah. And that started a process in 1990 of just, okay, let me write about this a little bit. And let me write about this. And let me write about this with no particular aim in mind or no idea of the scale of the task. It's just this stuff is inherently interesting and it's messy. So let me start, let me pull on the thread and see what I can do. And the years pass and I keep doing that. After a certain point, surprisingly, it becomes a viable enough activity that I stop doing the law firm thing and start relying on my contract language wits. It was something of a high wire act. It involved years of blogging in my bathrobe, getting into fights with people online about obscure words, and I just kept going. And one of the marvels of that is if you just keep plodding along. After 20 plus years, you look back and say, holy smokes, I've created an edifice. And in a way, the book is a superior version of me because I am entirely fallible and I have questionable memory and recall. And if you had a question about a bit of contract language, I'd say, okay, first look at the book because just that's the more authoritative version of my views on such things. I forget stuff that I've written. Oh, I wrote about that. Oh, all right. So it's just, this is not a novel idea. The idea that you make small changes consistently that have a big cumulative effect. So if I had been aware at the time of what was involved, I probably would have thought, that sounds kind of like a lot of work with uncertain payoff and maybe I better find something else to do. But what the heck, it managed to work out. Yeah, I think it's just a good career lesson in some ways that you've provided small, actionable system steps every day. And 20 years later, you may come up with something amazing or you may look back and think, oh, I've had a blast anyway. It's all good, right? Just moving on from your book, which is wonderful. Can I ask you to define traditional contract language? It just means what's in contracts now, which is a stew generated by generations of copy and paste heedlessly. Yeah. So with that legalistic element thrown in with the result that it is just very hard to make sense of. And if you can make sense of it, and it just, it's a drain on everyone's time and resources. So it's just what's out there and it's yes. Yeah. 
whenever, just as you were talking there and talking about the copy and paste side of things, I can just recall just going through so many different SaaS agreements in recent years where they all look fairly similar, right? They all follow a similar pattern. But some of the clauses you can almost tell have been pulled from maybe 10 other SaaS agreements that may be from the bigger companies in the space. Maybe as a startup, they're just trying to find their feet and they come up with this clause, this Frankenstein clause, poor logic very hard to follow. And that's kind of what I was just thinking about there. And I've seen a lot of debate around, you know, is copy and paste bad? Is copy and paste good? Are you in the bad camp? Or is it could be good if you apply some thought to it and don't just copy it for the sake of it? Well, the underlying urge is understandable. We keep doing the same transactions over and over again, so we might as well copy. But it's just the when you're dealing with word processing, when you're dealing with busy people subject to all sorts of constraints, the result is unfortunate. So yes, regarding the notion that contracts and somehow accumulate stuff that doesn't make sense. Yeah, that, there's a kind of pack rat urge or magpie urge that I saw something in this competitor's contract that we don't have, so we must add it to ours. And once something is in a contract, people are very reluctant to take it out because the assumption is someone smarter than me thought this was necessary. I don't have the time or expertise to reverse engineer near the process by which that this got into the contract, so I'm going to leave it there. And there's stuff that just stays in for centuries because of that. So I think of the whole copy and paste system as a system in which very smart people are stuck doing dumb stuff. Yeah. Thanks for the answer there. It's, um, it's just one of those conversations I see that maybe rears its head on, on LinkedIn occasionally. And there's always a very much a polarized view in the comments there around that notion. And I kind of just sit back and read it with just curiosity, if anything. That's why we don't rely on LinkedIn for yeah. our expertise, because it's a cocktail party. It is not a source of expertise unless you are particularly discerning. It's a very good point. Moving on from sort of this copy and paste landscape, the use of language in contracts, how do we improve on this? Because the issues you're talking about, they're widespread, right? This is happening almost in every industry, every company. I almost feel like when I first learned contracts outside of university, I've done my degree, my master's, got a grad role, and I was working with a bunch of contract managers, and they were just copy and pasting contract clauses from 10-year-old contracts, and then putting them together into a new contract. And they were effectively telling me to do that. And I was just looking at them, just wondering, why are we doing this when that clause is irrelevant to this new contract, or we don't have this risk in this contract? We actually have a different risk, and you haven't considered it. But this almost feels like there's a precedent around teaching contracts in the workplace in this way. I'll just pause there and give you some space. Inertia is a galactic level force in dealing with contract. People don't like change, so that just further entrenches copy and paste on an organizational level. If we deviate from this standard stuff everyone used to seeing, that means everyone in our process is going to have to learn stuff, adjust how they deal with things, change our playbook. And a lot I've learned from hard experience that a lot of organizations are just not equipped to do that. It's a good point. Just on the point of playbooks, what's your thoughts on having a playbook that helps you review, manage, interpret contract clauses? That's like saying, is copy and paste good or bad? I mean, it sounds like it's a neutral idea that off, that in the circumstances often it just doesn't work out. Now, in terms of playbooks, a playbook sounds is a great idea, but it's going to how helpful it is going to be a function of who put it together and what their frame of reference was. So it depends. Shocking. 
That's a, an absolutely fine answer, especially when we're talking about the law, right? It's, it's almost a good answer in many ways. Just moving on to technology in this space. We've seen an explosion of AI probably in the last six months. Everyone is GPT this, GPT that, GPT free, 3.54 is the savior of contracts. We don't need lawyers. Well, what's your thoughts around this? Is it the Marvel getting contracts right that some people seem to think it is? I have not assessed recent crop of AI, emergent AI or generative AI. I've not kicked the tires much myself. So I am not in a position to say what the if, just how useful it'll prove to be in the long run. I'm sure there are some kinds of tasks where it'll be great, others not yeah. so helpful. So I haven't looked at it closely simply because contracts is a little immune from generative AI in that generative AI works by you're saying, hey, AI, please digest this stash of text, thousands or untold millions of texts relating to whatever, and then we'll ask you questions about it and we'll ask you to replicate it in some manner. So fine, except that when it comes to contracts, whatever you're training the AI on is going to be a vast mound of dysfunction. So all you're going to be able to do is replicate the dysfunction. So nothing good is going to come from it. Nevertheless, there's plenty of chatter about how this changes everything, even for contracts, because the legal profession is, when it comes to contracts, is always looking for a savior of some sort. And a buzz phrase will come along that suggests salvation in my you know, one decade, it was knowledge management. Now it's chat GPT. They throw money at the problem because they're stuck in a system that just doesn't allow people to escape easily. So I think it just is clearly it, what we're talking about is a spiffy tech skin over copy and paste dysfunction. It's just the copy and paste machine 2023 version. We don't want a regurgitation of poor contracting, right? And we're teaching it. Oh, this is how yes. contracts should be based on this poor way of doing it. And let the technology just kind of dump what it thinks is appropriate. And I will rely on it somehow. So it is the contract content space is kind of immune from yeah. any sensible escape hatch through generative AI. I played around with GPT for the best current version with some contract clauses and it was poor, I thought. Really struggled on limit of liability, indemnity clauses, things like that. And no wonder why. <laughs> that is something of a black hole. Yeah. You know, limitation of liability. I mean, it's, there's no hope that AI yeah. is somehow going to dispel the fog. Especially when one sentence in some of those clauses can go one way, cut back on another, go to a different direction and pull itself back and then somehow exempt itself from the rest of the agreement. So uh, yeah, I thought I would throw it into the, the deep water with a test because I'd seen so much chatter about, oh, so so amazing for contracts. And I was, well, I wasn't underwhelmed. I just didn't expect it to do very well in the first place based on how a large language model worked and operated. Although to his credit, summarization of large text seems to be Okay, and quite impressed with that ability, which can be helpful in certain scenarios. It's been a it's been good fun playing around with the these sort of things. Maybe just go a slightly different direction on the AI side of things, because I'm sure I read one of your articles recently, which was someone asked you if your book would be almost like a playbook, right? If AI consumed your book, would it be able to draft your the contracts in the manner in which you suggest? And in fact, like based on what we've just said, I think in the article, it's probably 
a limitation now with its ability. Yes, I've actually been thinking about that, wondering whether my answer is sufficient because I was responding to casual suggestions. Hey, can you teach AI your book and then unleash it on traditional <laughs> language and have the language be cleaned up? Yeah. An initial question I didn't consider in my response is whether that's something you can ask AI to do because its primary function is just feed it a whole bunch of text and ask it to replicate, just recognize the patterns in that text and then cough up some variants on it on demand. It isn't a matter of, hey, let's teach it a bunch of rules. So it might be the basic idea isn't currently viable. In my blog post, I just said, okay, let's assume the technology can in fact do that. Here's why I think it's a stretch anyway, just because contract language is just, the traditional contract language is sufficiently messed up that it is not conducive to, here, let's just do a redline version where we strike out the traditional language and give you an alternative that expresses the same thing. Just too much in traditional contract language has the informed reader saying, what do you want here? What are you looking for? What does this mean? I can think of three variants and addressing each of those variants is going to require completely different verbiage that can end up being quite extensive. So it's not, it would always be an ugly process. So just for either of, or both of those two reasons, I just explained the idea of let's get AI to apply my book ain't happening anytime soon. It would be wonderful if it could. It really would be. It would help so many people if it could. But like you said, I think just in regards to AI currently, an ugly process, just in general, is a perfect way to describe what I'm seeing from AI and contracts, at least on the draft inside it. It feels like we're a long way away from that. I'm just thinking, I shared with you before, I'm a lawyer. I'm a, I've always considered myself to be a contract manager. I talk and work with a bunch of people who are in procurement, in contract management. They sit outside of legal and they are empowered to work with contracts on a daily basis, normally vendor agreements, supplier agreements, mixed complexity. What advice would you give those people who aren't traditionally trained in law to get a little bit more comfortable with contracting? It's routine for people other than lawyers to have a say in business deals. Business people can run the transaction. Contract managers have a big say in, in getting deals done. There's no reason why people other than lawyers shouldn't be in charge of contract language or at least have a, as much of a say as lawyers when it comes to how you express the deal. So I would like people other than lawyers to have a say. And certainly lawyers have not been good custodians of contract language over the centuries. So what the heck, let's let other people in on the action. The idea is to become an informed consumer and producer of contract language. And that is not rocket science. My book is essentially the only resource on the subject. I've done the hard work. I wrote the sucker. It's still a subject that has challenges, but I've laid it out in considerable detail. So anyone who has the stomach to get to grips with this stuff can become an informed consumer of contract language. And I say, let's invite to the party everyone who is competent at handling contract language, regardless of what hat they
everywhere because contracts involve different constituencies. And it's for the best if everyone involved has some command over contract language instead of just saying, oh, let's leave it to the lawyers and wringing our hands in anxiety and frustration at how things work out anyway. Instead, kind of elbow your room for yourself at the table and join in. I actually think that's wonderful advice because, well, one, that applies to me fundamentally as a non-traditional legal, whatever we call a contract manager. <laughs> we were just talking about the debate of non-lawyers and everything that we come across in the Twitterverse and LinkedInverse and just about any other place on the internet. But I've also worked with a bunch of engineers, scientists, and software engineers, especially, who are very particular in their own work, whether it's code or formulas that they're working with. And you unleash them on the contract, they will just quiz every element of it in quite a wonderful manner. And it really opens your eyes to how other people interpret contracts outside of that legal bubble. That's really interesting. Ken, just to finish up, just a couple of quick fire questions we ask all of our guests to end this podcast. So the first one is, what's one piece of tech, hardware or software that you cannot live without? An unglamorous bit of kind of software called document assembly software that allows people to create a relevant document by answering a questionnaire. It is desperately unfashionable. It has been languishing for 15, 20 years because it's not glamorous. And it, for purposes of contracts, it requires building document assembly questionnaires involves rummaging around in the entrails of contracts and just becoming intimately familiar with the mess. And most people don't have the stomach for that. And modern, yeah. most organizations don't have the economies of scale necessary to make the system like that kind of cost effective. But from my perspective, the only alternative to copy and paste is giving people access to a way to scale up quality contract language and content, because it's not just a matter of how people say what they say in the contracts, it's also a matter of what they say. So document assembly technology is the best way to give people access to quality contract language. And that is my next challenge to build something that people can use as an alternative, copy and paste. And so document assembly software is essential for that. That sounds wonderful to me. I always like it when I ask that question, someone says, oh, it's like, it's not glamorous, this one, because I always find there's more benefit to these non-glamorous tech solutions. I feel like you asked a lot of people, they would say things like GPT, and other pieces of software because they're new and shiny and we as humans like new shiny things but the more traditional pieces of software or there's a lot of value there the last question is kind of weird ken and i still i get weirded out every time i ask it it's kind of it gets some good answers though so we're going to go with it so i'm a contracts genie you've got one wish what would that one wish be yeah, I thought about that one. I am so rooted in the reality that the possibility of coming up with something that it's just I'm not going to have in real life seems like a bit of a dead end. But I'm going to just make a general wish that people were less subject to inertia, were less just stuck in the way things have been and seem petrified at changing. So I appreciate that change comes at a cost time, money spread across your contract system, but nothing gets better without change. So instead of just putting up the walls against change, I would like people to just try and imagine once you make them better and once you get over that hump in terms of the cost of change. And then after that, you have an expanse of fields and waterfalls and trees and it's a brand new vista. So just try and focus less on the pain of change and look towards what happens when you make things better. 
That's a wonderful answer, actually. Well, everyone listening will met people who are prone to never change it in some ways, or they're terrified of normally the time effort, right? That's normally a big burden there. So you know, I really like that answer. Ken, this has been an absolute pleasure. Thanks for coming on and just dropping a lot of knowledge about contract drafting. I think you're probably the best in the game. <laughs> Let's call it out there. So it's been a pleasure having you on. No, it's been fun. Thank you very much. Procurement Reimagined is brought to you by Gatekeeper. To find out more about Gatekeeper and how our vendor and contract lifecycle management solution is delivering visibility, control, and compliance to our customers, visit www.gatekeeperhq.com. And then make sure to search for Procurement Reimagined in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, or anywhere else that podcasts are found. Make sure to click subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. On behalf of the team here at Gatekeeper, thanks for listening.